0: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. she's going to smash-
1: Hello and welcome to Off The Bench Podcast. I'm Molly McElwee, a journalist and writer.
2: And I'm Lauren Rouse, two-time Paralympic rowing champion.
1: Each week we'll be inviting extraordinary women athletes, coaches and leaders in sport onto the show. They'll be sharing moments they felt
2: sidelined during their careers and how they found ways to smash through barriers and succeed regardless. From difficult injuries to living life online as an athlete to finding their way in a male-dominated industry, these incredible women will be sharing what they've learned along the way. Today we welcomed Orla Shanui onto the show. Orla wears many hats. She's a
1: journalist, broadcaster, and podcaster, and she leads Eurosports coverage of cycling and the Olympics. The conversation was just so wide ranging from where she started her career to where she got to now, her powerful reporting on the Me Too movement and cycling. I mean, Lauren, how did you find
2: it? Just so powerful. I have never had a conversation with a a journalist in that way or a a presenter. I think for myself, it was so interesting the insights into uh, her experiences as a woman within journalism and within presenting and most importantly, just her expression to be herself. I think I felt that so strongly and her energy was infectious and I just thoroughly loved it loved the episode. Yeah,
1: we really hope you enjoy it too. Here's Off The Bench with Ola Chenui.
2: Welcome, Ola, to Off The Bench podcast. We're so excited to have you here today. I'm so excited to be here. It's lovely. Thank you for having me on. It's a real honor. I hear you're busy at the moment with the Giro d'Italia. What does that look like for you, like the everyday?
0: Well, at the, the, moment? the everyday from here is a lot easier than the everyday on the ground. So um, if you're covering a three-week stage race, the Giro d'Italia, bike race, it takes place over three weeks, 21 stages. It's like the Tour de France, but in Italy. And if you are on location, it's abs which I've been before it's absolutely brutal because you are up at the crack of dawn every day. You're checking out of a new hotel that you've only checked into the night before. You're going to a new start line. You're broadcasting all day. You're leaving to go to a new hotel in the evening, missing dinner, getting up and doing it all the next day. So here, for like absolute luxury, so we're in a studio just outside London by Heathrow. And so what I'm doing is I'm staying in Windsor uh, in an Airbnb. I get up, I do my prep. I listen to all the podcasts that I've missed the night before. I get in a car and I drive into the studio. Then we'll have our morning prep meeting. We'll have rehearsals, hair and makeup, which for me takes a while. Then we'll generally film a little reel to be silly. And then we'll do our uh, pre-show, which is before the race begins. So that's about anything between 20 minutes and 45 minutes of live TV. And then we we sit down and watch the race all day, which is like five hours of bike racing, which is the dream to me. I've got two kids and I never get the time to watch cycling when I'm at home. And then we're immediately on air afterwards and doing a, a very immediate post-race reaction. So trying to unpick everything as the viewer is as well. And then that's it. Then we all go back to Windsor and go out for dinner all together because luckily I work with an amazing team of people who were just really good friends and then get to bed and get up and do it all again the next day for three and a half weeks, it turns out to be. So it's a long time away from home. Yeah, because you live in
2: Amsterdam, don't you?
0: I do, yeah. So I've got a husband two kids and a puppy now, uh, the latest addition to the family in Amsterdam. So we do get a rest day once a week. So I'll get two rest days in the middle of that three and a half weeks. And usually I've been staying over away from home for the whole of the three and a half weeks. And I thought I'm going to try this time because we've moved from Bath to London. So it's easier to fly home. So I flew home yesterday. Well, no, I flew home on Sunday night after the stage and got back last night, and I'll do that again next week. So I've got one day a week then at home, which makes a big difference. Well, I want to start the podcast by flying back to the start of your career um, and talking about London
2: 2012, because not only for sport, that was a momentous game, but also a big turning point in your career. So I just want you to talk a little bit from how you got into doing, I guess, news presenting into sports presenting through doing London 2012.
0: Yeah. So I started out, as you say, as a news journalist, I actually started out doing law. Well, I I did a law degree with French, but kind of knew I didn't want to practice law. So I I moved into journalism straight away. I did a postgrad in journalism. And my passion had always been for news and telling the untold stories. I was quite evangelical about how I wanted to be a news journalist and the countries I wanted to visit. And then the In truth, the politics, the reality of the politics of a newsroom kind of took over and I didn't like that so much. Also, I find news as a medium to spend your time in just really heavy. It's hard, you know, because you're only dealing with the worst of humanity. You're only dealing with disasters and court cases of serial offenders or sex attackers or murderers. And it's just... you can detach from that for so long, which I did. But then there comes a point where you think, hmm, if, if I'm if doing this for a bigger purpose, then great. If I don't get there, then what? And so sport had been my lifelong passion. I, I was massively into sport as a kid. Absolutely loved it. And But I never thought of changing into sport until the news editor, the home news editor of Sky News, where I worked at the time, had been to Beijing for the London, for the Beijing Olympics. And came back waxing lyrical about how amazing the London Olympics were going to be, and decided that he wanted an Olympics correspondent. So there were a few of us in the newsroom who fancied a bite of that apple, and oh, all you? applied for. It. <laughs> well, well, this is the funny thing though: in a newsroom, sport can be quite looked down upon. It seemed to not be the serious, the serious specialism, you know. And and there was there was a little bit of I think condescension, really, whenever I went for it. And when I got it, it was a little bit like, oh, you're just having a play. You know, it's just sport. And for me, once somebody acts like that anyway, it gets my back up and I'll be like, I'm going to show you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so the irony of it was then through sport, I was able to visit all of these projects and all of these humanita- humanitarian projects in Tanzania and in refugee camps in Jordan and I was able to access those kinds of human stories that I was desperate to tell. But then I also got to work in an incredibly inspirational field. So London 2012 was the most magnificent moment in my sporting landscape. It was this coming together of all of these people with all of these ambitions and dreams and just having fun it was just fun and I loved as well that I was one of the big cynics you know I was pull it, trying to pull apart um the finance you know the numbers um you know the political promises and blah 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 and all of that was just forgotten for a couple of weeks because it worked you know and and I loved being proven wrong on that and but yeah I just decided that there was a passion in me that was being fed and met by sport and i was never going to go back and so i was actually supposed to then stay at sky news and do i don't know what i guess go back into the pool of general correspondence and i said well no if 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 you do that then i'm leaving so i swift i changed over to sky sports and sky sports news and then i stayed there and that was it it genuinely changed my life
1: yeah i mean london 2012 was a game changer for loads of athletes and i love that for you as a broadcaster it completely changed mm. the direction of your career When you got into sport and after kind of London 2012 and all the amazing things about that, when did you kind of maybe realize, okay, maybe there are issues here that I need to, I don't know, you have to navigate a different kind of environment to news and everything's maybe less serious. But did you still find it tricky in terms of being a woman in that space?
0: Yeah, I did. And I guess in some ways, naively, it kind of surprised me because In a news newsroom, there isn't so much of the gender imbalance as such. To be clear, I've always felt like an outsider, always, all my life, for different reasons. Growing up Catholic in Northern Ireland during the Troubles for a start, and then moving over to London to become a journalist in a newsroom full of Oxbridge graduates. I had the wrong accent. I had the wrong attitude. I have too I have too much of a smile and a spring in my step to be taken seriously by and large. And so I tried to then speak through my work and my work ethic. That had paid off to a certain extent within news. So when I crossed over to Sky Sports News, it was... Unusual because I was taken seriously straight away. Because I'd been seen to come from a very serious newsroom, my journalistic credentials were never in any doubt in there. And so I was given huge respect by colleagues and bosses and everything, which is wonderful. However, <laughs> when I went out into the field, it was a different ball game, you know, because for a start, you're going into sports as a woman from Sky Sports News, and that comes with a stigma that is completely unmerited, quite frankly, given the caliber of female journalists in that newsroom and and the experience that they have and what they bring to the sporting landscape. But also, I'm not someone to hide away from whatever it is that I, however I choose to represent. And so I've always felt very strongly a woman, which sounds a bit odd, but I guess I've always felt quite feminine. And I'm not going to dress that in chinos and a polo shirt, you know, so I turn up to bike races, for example, in a tight dress and wedges, (laughs) which is not how you used to dress going to bike races. So I would stand out for that. But in my mind, I was dressing very professionally because that's how we dress in news, but it's just not how you dress at a bike race. But of course, again, as soon as somebody points that out, I am doubling down. I'm coming in more dresses and higher wedges and you're going to see that you have to take me seriously despite how I dress. So it took quite a while to be taken seriously, I would say, in that arena in terms of the athletes and the team bosses. And I had quite a few issues. Some, when I look back now, that make me really sad really sad. Um, and I would hate any other woman, young woman to have to go through, you know. Um I've been in situations in social occasions around bike races where I'm there very much as a professional, but have been sexually assaulted, you know, where I have been groped. In but because it happens in front of other people, it seemed to be a bit of fun and fun and games. When actually it's just humiliating because you're made to feel aware that you are there in that person's eyes just as an object. And, and I had it happen once at an event that I was actually hosting. <laughs> we were in the dance floor afterwards and a senior member of management came over and, and groped me um, on my breasts in the dance floor. I wasn't even talking to him at the time. I wasn't even dancing with him, nothing. He walked over and did that. He was obviously very drunk. And my friend went up to him afterwards. I was in shock. She went up and said, why did you do that? And he said, well, because she was there. And that's the kind of thing that has happened to me a few different times. I have another team boss who was doing something very similar repeatedly. And it took another, and every time I was physically slapping him off, and it took another rider to come over and say, a young rider, this kid, I can't even remember who it was, but younger than me and saying, leave her alone. And then he did because it came from a male voice, you know. So unfortunately, there were issues like that to navigate as well as being taken seriously for my work. You touched upon it before,
1: some of your experiences in cycling, Mm. just in terms of sexual harassment, sexual assault in cycling. You then went on to report about that Mm. a couple of years ago. Yeah. I just wonder, was that kind of inspired by your own experiences, kind of wanting to talk to women cyclists about how their experiences Uh, of the sport have been? Because that's not always the case that kind of broadcasters delve into kind of very deeply into mm-hmm. kind of those kinds of topics especially when yeah you're there to present the sport too
0: yeah um it was it wasn't at all because of any experience that i had and i was really 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 reluctant to even include any of that in the pieces that i wrote so i did um i guest edited uh an issue of ruler magazine which is a beautiful beautiful cycling uh, publication And it was their first ever woman's issue, which is still their biggest selling issue in history by quite a margin. And we resold it again recently and it flew off um, the proverbial shelves. Uh, That was part of their mission, really, to prove that there was an appetite for women's voices, women's stories, women's cycling. But an important part of that was at the time as I was writing it, it was still very much in the thick of me too. And there hadn't been any kind of uh, Me Too revelations in cycling, even though I knew of lots of situations of power abuse and things that are just very uncomfortable. I guess the problem is, when I came to them, as a woman, we get so used to these things. We get so used to power abuse and the men being in control. And certainly when you're coming up through the ranks and suggestions of, I don't know. I don't know. It's just a its just a constant power play. And, you know, things like what happened to me and being groped several times by people in power and it being witnessed and no one being really that horrified by it. And so you normalize it and you think that's okay. And so that was a difficulty for me really was that in so many of the instances that eventually I got lots of riders to talk to me about, I think there was a, sense that, oh, well, that's just what we put up with. You know, that's just the way life is. that's And it's only when you start to gather the stories that you get really angry and you think, no, this is not the way it should be. Mm. And for me, including anything of my own story, I was also very reluctant to do because my job is to tell the stories, not to be the story. And I didn't, I didn't want that to overshadow what had happened to anybody else. And so I sort of referred to it and I talked to my husband about it quite a lot as to how much include or not and in the end I sort of made a bit of a passing reference rather than making it in any way central you know it was very it was literally at the end of the piece that I referred to it because I think we're still just like even talking about it to be perfectly honest right I have anxiety even talking about it makes my chest compress right now because I feel sick even thinking that I'm talking about something that's happened to me Mm. When you hear of other people going through something, you get angry on their behalf. And this is something that was really common amongst all the people that I spoke to. Each one of them said, it's okay, I can deal with it, but I don't want this to happen to my sister. I don't want this to happen to a younger teammate. And then when you realize that the only way to try to stop that happening is letting people know what's happening in the first place and to speak to a collective anger, then people start to tell their stories. And I realized that if I was asking other people to tell their stories and I had to at least refer to things that had happened to me, um, you know, I'm not traumatized by anything. I can handle myself, you know, and Mm -hmm. also I know at least am in quite a position of power in my sport. And I don't mean power over other people. I mean, I just I have a power of authority and confidence within myself that um, I would deal with it quite differently. So it's not like it's held me back. But it's been something, you know, that sexism within sport and the role that a lot of men traditionally have seen women to have to have within sport has been a big challenge. I would say I genuinely think it's different for the younger generation. And I genuinely think that a lot of the younger guys coming through the sport just don't hold these thoughts but then the problem with passing ways of thinking onto younger generations is that nobody is born thinking that boys are better than girls. It's something that's taught to them anyway. Yeah. You know, and there has to be a cut-off point whereby you're telling your boys you're not any better than the girls in your class. You know, but if you're coming into an industry that's steeped in history, as cycling is, and you're learning from all the old school, well, this is what the girls are for, and you know, we'll sneak them into the hotel rooms, and you know, we've got the podium girls which you don't have anymore. Mm. It's very difficult for men, young men, to escape that way of thinking. But I do think that the change is coming from men as much as women. You know, it's we're showing other men how we want to be treated, and the right minded men and the right thinking men are doing a much better job these days, I think, of saying to their peers, this isn't right anymore, you know? So it's changing a lot.
1: Yeah, no, that's really good to hear. Just on a professional level, did you ever feel like, not that it was too close to home but more like did you worry about any implications it might have for you as kind of, oh, of kind course. of exposing things like that in the sport of
0: course yeah. of course which is a big factor in not wanting to say anything because mm. ugh, this is how society is and i keep blaming society almost to take um Spotlight off any given sport, but it's true. It's victim blaming as well. Mm. You know, so it could be, well, you were at the party and you'd had a few drinks. How drunk were you? Or you were wearing a short skirt. What did you expect? And that's part of it. You want to almost feel like you're completely without blame to be able to say anything. And I'm sorry, that's utter BS. It is utter BS. You know, but we see this in court cases. When, when the way we handle rape victims in court cases, we rip apart their sex lives. It's almost as though they have to be completely innocent of any sexual appetite even mm. to be the victim of sexual assault or, or rape. So yeah, yeah. I can see why people then would, would struggle to say anything because victim blaming is a massive, massive, massive problem. Mm. It's the same thing you see with athletes with like whether it be sponsorships and
2: stuff they don't come out and say things that maybe have happened to them or you know go against the grain of what is being said with a fear of them losing their career over it or maybe not being selected for a team or whatever it may be Mm. and you see that a lot and I I tend to find um, within the female athlete community it's the power in the collective Mm -hmm. like if there's always always you are more likely to gravitate towards a Me Too movement, mm-hmm. if you can all gang together and there be the power in the collective. Mm-hmm. Do you think that with an increase of female journalists getting into sport, do you feel that more and more that there is becoming more safer spaces, I guess? And do you feel like the landscape is changing because there hopefully is going to be, over the years especially, more of an increase in that female representation so you feel a little bit safer in those areas as well as the attitudes and like you say, male allies then standing up and trying to change the landscape. Yeah, a bit.
0: absolutely, absolutely. And I think that is really, really important. And I think that's why the more visible women we have representing how they choose to represent and not being apologetic about it, the better it is for all of us.
2: It seems like fashion and identity really shines through in a lot of female presenters. You see with, with a lot of female sports presenters, Alex Scott really mm-hmm. owns that. Mm-hmm. You know, you guys love and take pride in the way that you look. And I think there's something really empowering about that collectively mm-hmm. between all of you that you're saying, well, it, it shouldn't define my work. Actually, for, for me, it shines through of who I am and it represents who I am. I always look at like Alex Scott's mm-hmm. Instagram because she wears the most incredible outfits. Yeah. I'm always so jealous of <laughs> the stuff that she gets invited to what she wears. But even, you know, um, I think really showcasing that in the role that you have Mm. in that male dominated when you're in cycling and you're on the sidelines of the tour and wearing what you do is a real statement of who you are. Mm. But I think more importantly, really collectively that as women, you are owning this and you're going, we're not going to let people's opinions and judgment and saying we shouldn't wear this get to us. And actually, we're going to be more bold in our choices <laughs> yeah. and I really love that and do you, do you feel that collectively you know as female presenters that you really feel as though you're going to
0: make a statement by doing that I do actually and, and I don't know if making a statement is even the right way to say it a statement is made about it I guess and that's the decision of other people I dress the way I dress for a number of reasons I'll get to that in a moment but I think it's Alex Scott is a perfect example to me whereby I look at her Insta as well and think, yeah, it's fine. We're all doing this. We're all doing it. And there are quite a number of, of female journalists now, um, female broadcasters who do that, who, who completely own how they're going to look and how they're going to represent. And they're not going to be told it's to this, that or the other. And I find that really, really empowering and reassuring. And I think the reason that's important is because we have to show that we're writing the rules too. You know, I'm not here existing in a man's world. I know really that is the way it is because that is society still. But it's not going to change if I keep doing what I'm told to do. It's only going to change if I live true to how I am and who I am and what I want to see in the world. And that's who I'm doing it for as well as for me. But I get so many people, I mean, I get so much criticism, it's ridiculous. But I also get so many people men and women saying, thank you. And that's, uh, I hesitate to say that, like I'm not anybody to be thanked, but they'll say, I really celebrate the fact that you dress the way you do, because it shows a completely different way of being able to express your personality. And it's, I think that's really important across all industries. You know, I look at Hannah Waddingham presenting Eurovision and she is just sexy, sassy, personality, fun, energy, all the things that, I think even five years ago would have been classed as too much. And now it's, yes, bring that on, you know. But it's really important for me that I'm here saying, no, you're not going to tell me I've got to be 20 to wear that. Because it's my decision. It's my body. It's my society that I live in as well. And if I want it to be the way I want it to look, I've got to be a representation of that as well. I remember being 22 and going into a, Press conference
1: room in men's mm. football and seeing all ma- male faces. The second time I went back, I kind of changed the way I approached oh, it. Yeah. And then, and I caught myself after a few times of doing it, being like, why am I presenting myself differently? Because I'm in an all-male space. But because I... they all
0: stop and look, don't they? Exactly. And they all turn around and you think, oh, they're all looking at me. Yeah. What are they thinking? And if I'm dressed too sexually or too feminine, or then it's going to bring extra tension on me. I want to hide away. I want to yeah. shrink away. But the reality is you can not shrink away or hide no. away anyway. So you might as well be there the way you want to be there.
1: Exactly. And I think it's it's just a really... Weird way when you think about it, you think, Why am I changing any part of the way I'm presenting myself based on the environment I'm in? And I think it's, yeah, just cool that you have kind of locked into that and Mm. also just bring a lot of bright clothing also to to, to TV, (laughs) which is just really fun. I just love it because you're in a space that men's cycling, a lot of the time you're covering men's cycling, Mm -hmm. which is. I mean it's it's you can cycling. say it <laughs> I mean, so cycling is a is a weird sport like yeah. just from the outside yeah. if you feel like an outsider in in any sport i think cycling would be one mm-hmm. that's quite hard to follow quite hard to kind of get into once yeah. you're in it you're in it yeah. but if you're not in it you're kind of like what's going on here so yeah, yeah it's just it, i think it's e- even more impressive in that it's in that space and i just wonder for you beyond kind of the way you present yourself how did you find going into kind of men's cycling just from the point of kind of doing your research and doing all that kind of thing to kind of make sure when you're talking to kind of people around you who are professionals mm-hmm. or former professionals that they're like, okay, she knows her stuff here. It's not kind of, I don't know. It must, it must feel like quite a weird space to go into for the first time, I guess. It
0: is. It's really hard because cycling is a very, very complex sport. Certainly it's the most complex that I've ever covered. Yeah. And partly because it looks really simple. You know, it's just <laughs> men or woman on a bike going from A to B and mm. the complexities within a peloton and the tactics and the different team priorities at play I'm still flummoxed by it sometimes you know I, but but then anyone watching a bike race will be and I, I learned this from my fellow pundits here pre- former professional bike riders and they'll call one move and then speak to your rider afterwards and say no 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 that's not why we were doing that <laughs> you know it's, it's quite it's quite refreshing yeah and reassuring but here's the advantage of always feeling like an outsider whatever mm-hmm. that's been whether it's been as I say my background or Um, my gender. I am really stubborn. And so it means that I will want to prove to somebody that I am here. Not that I deserve to be here. I belong because I don't know who deserves anything, but that I'm here and I'm going to stay here. So I genuinely believe it has made me work so much harder, so much harder than if I was a male with the inverted commas right accent or right background or even if I'd been a professional bike rider, I'm coming at this knowing I'm going to be criticized and I'm going to be torn apart for getting, getting anything wrong. And in a way, quite rightly so, because I'm in a very privileged position to be able to cover a sport that people love. I owe it to them to get it right. So I feel a sense of responsibility to myself, to everyone else who is on the outside as well, wanting to have a slice of this, to be as knowledgeable as I can possibly be. So I do believe that I have, I'm better at my job because I've always felt a need to prove myself. And that is a real advantage. And I think I have never had any of these situations whereby I have felt othered for being a woman or whatever it might be. I've never thought, oh, am I in the wrong place? I've thought, right. I'm going to have to work even harder to prove to you. Now, the problem is that that's a long game. You know, you can't show someone straight away overnight that you have done the research, that you're worthy of your place. That takes time, but I'm not in any rush. (laughs) And I've never planned to go anywhere else. This is what I want to do. And so if it takes me, you know, I'm about to embark on a different sport. I will have the same issue all over again. And that's fine because I'm going to prove because I have the confidence in my ability to work hard and to learn quickly and to be curious. And I think as long as you show respect for the sport and the people within the sport, eventually they'll show you that respect back again. So I'm actually very, very grateful for feeling like I've had to work really hard because I want to be able to stand there at the end of the day and say, see, you weren't right about me after all. You know, I'm stubborn. (laughs) It's a, it's a, quite a good quality sometimes. Yeah, I
2: love that. As a, as we say as athletes, Like, there's beauty in the journey. and You've got to mm. love the journey more than you have the destination, really. You know, a lot of us go and striving for medals and every four years you try and win an Olympic or a Paralympic gold medal. But actually, it's that journey that you take to get there. And for a lot of us, it is it is the day in, day out grind. Yeah, It is being told that you can't do it. It's the reason why we love it all. Mm. It's not standing up on that podium in top position going how great that is. It's being told... Again and again, you wouldn't make it. Or by some commentator, look, they were down and out two years ago, you know. And I think that that really sounds like that shines through in the work that you do as Mm. well, is that there's some element of, you've got that like athlete mentality in you (laughs) a little bit of where you're just like, I don't get how hard the grind's going to be. I don't get how difficult the journey may be. I've got real purpose to be here. Do you think you have to have that, I guess, especially as a female presenter you have to have a that element of resilience that Mm -hmm. skill to be able to just bat off the criticism but also as well do you think you have to have a real strong motivation and goal and purpose of what you want to
0: do yeah I really do but I think that's what success is across life isn't it you've got if for anyone who wants to be successful you've got to really really believe in that journey you've got to believe why you want to get there and you've got to believe in yourself to get that far what I always say is that at my level, whenever I look across and see other women in my field, I know without a shadow of a doubt, they will be excellent at what they do because they've had to go through so much to get to where they are. And I also look at maybe 10 years ago, if I were to look left and right across my field and see the men and the women, a lot of the men have dropped off because they didn't necessarily have to work as hard as the women did. So I've got enormous respect for women right across my industry who keep at it and keep at it and keep at it because that that does take a resilience. You know, we're not doing it for the other men because also the more women we have within sport, the more women we attract to it. And when I was growing up, I was a massive, massive football fan, both soccer and Gaelic football. And it was always delivered to me by men. And so you're always aware that you're on the outside. And I remember even the sports journalists when I was a kid were all men And my mum, actually, when I was younger and wanted to be a journalist, but I was also actively competing. I remember her saying, using an example of a a male sports presenter on BBC Northern Ireland, I think it was, um, saying, well, maybe you could do his job. And I thought to myself, well, obviously I can't because we don't do that. You know, there aren't any women doing that. (laughs) But again, this goes back to why I choose to dress the way I dress as well, because I want to show that this is a space for all expressions of personality and all expressions of sexuality, femininity, masculinity, whatever you want it to be. The thing as well for me that it all comes back to really in sport is that we should be having fun. And if a woman chooses to have fun, that doesn't make her the object of any of your gaze. She's just doing it. You know, allow her to have fun, allow him to have fun. We are here to bring light to people's days. You know, we are in the entertainment industry. You're a completely different, Lauren. You're there for performance, you're there to make the to push yourself to the ultimate of your capabilities. And that in itself is an amazing achievement for us. We're trying to sell all of that as an inspiration and entertainment to people and so we need to stop taking it so seriously sometimes mm. you know and that's as well what the women bring to it and dressing the way they want to dress brings that element of fun to it stop taking it so seriously guys stop it I think you really feel that within whether you look at the women's
2: Euros though mm. the, the audience that women's sport is bringing is a different kind of audience because it's one where you can bring your kids to it have yeah. fun enjoy it more there's this sense of being in a space where you feel a lot more safe that mm. you can have fun and just enjoy the time there and watch sport like you exactly say And just enjoy it because that's what sport is about. And I think that that's really interesting for me is that it's bringing women's sport in particular. It's just bringing that other dimension to sport. It's bringing in, like you say, more women viewing sport as well. Whether it be moms, moms and their kids, whatever it may be. And do you find that when you, I mean, I know you've worked on women's cycling. um, Do you find it's a really different? I guess, feel an environment when you work on the women's events?
0: Yeah, it is. And and I guess partly as well, that's um, the level of professionalisation. So the men's teams are much, much bigger. They have more money. There are more people there. Women's cycling is much more accessible. Mm. They don't have the big buses with the cordoned off spaces in front of them. You know, they're sitting on foldable chairs in front of a team camper van, whatever it might be. Um, but it's still incredibly serious and it's becoming much more professional. I would say in terms of a uh, fan experience, to be honest, cycling is is really family friendly. Mm. And so you, you would get whole families coming to a men's bike race as you would a woman's bike race. And what cycling has to its advantage is a lot of the disciplines are men's and women's together. Mm. So I got to take my kids recently to the World Cyclocross Championships, which is men and women competing over the same weekend in Hoogerheide in the Netherlands. So like a few hours away from where we live. And here's what was really interesting about that weekend, because I said, you know, boys learn, they learn from society, they learn from the media, who their heroes are supposed to be. And traditionally, the heroes that we put on television and on billboards are men. And so men and women then idolize the men if you give them a level playing field, children, if you give them a level playing field, it's really interesting to see who they latch on to. So we went and only got a chance to watch the women's under 23 world championships and the men's senior race. Now in the men's senior race, you have two of the best bike riders who've ever come against each other. They are thrilling to watch. Walt Van Aert and Mathieu van der Poel. They have been rivals since they've been kids. And here they are once again, fighting it out in the world championships. And it's, Man against man, they're just doing each lap, the two of them, one's in front, then the other's in front, then the other's in front. Thrilling race. Before that, we'd had the women's under 23 race. Now, for the women's race, we didn't actually manage to get so close to the barriers. So the kids were sort of on our shoulders and jumping up and trying to watch on screens and everything. And it was a brilliant race. But in cycling terms, it wasn't what we saw on the men's elite but I've been explaining to them on the way there uh, about different riders that they should be watching out for. And I was talking about Zoe Backstead, who's a young Welsh rider, who's absolutely phenomenal, multiple world champion. I was talking about Sharon Van Anroy, who is a Dutch rider who's been making huge waves on the road scene and is a cyclocross rider as well. Anyway, they had a ball of a day, absolutely loved it. And Sharon Van Anroy won the under 23 race over Zoe Backstead. We got to meet Zoe afterwards, which was an an amazing privilege because I managed to get under the ropes and she came over and she let the kids take a oh. picture with her medal and all the rest they were biting the medal <laughs> um, <laughs> and then it. anyway the next week so I've got my daughter who's eight and my son who's four and my, we've been trying to get my son to ride his bike by himself for like a year and anyway the next weekend of course after seeing all of this that's it he's on his bike and he's Haring around the streets of Amsterdam going, like, <laughs> mental. Um, and on the first day, he decided he was mature. And he was, uh, I'm mature, mommy, I'm mature. And then when he fell <laughs> off, he was Wout, because Wout finished second. By the next day, however, he was Zoe. So Zoe Backstead and I was Sharon Van Anroy. And Sheeran had won. So um, because I was always in front of him, I was a Sheeran and he was a Zoe. And then whenever he passed me, he would go, Zoe's winning, mummy. Zoe. <laughs> and for weeks, he was Zoe Backstead and had completely forgotten about Matcha and Wild. In his head, it wasn't about who's the boys and who's the girls. It was who'd given him the most joy. And it wasn't... me forcing anything on him politically correct or, you know, that satisfies my gender bias. He just chose the rider that he wanted to identify with. And it was the way back And I thought, oh, this is so refreshing because,
1: Yeah.
0: yeah, you've given him the even platform and he's chosen regardless of gender. pretty cool. That's really powerful. I think like, I mean, growing up as a kid and growing up with
2: absolute sport icons for myself, you know, I was inspired when I was a little kid by Paula Radcliffe to Kelly Mm. Holmes and I wanted to be just like them. You know, growing up as, as a kid who just loved sport and any sport, but in particular running for me, you know, I looked up to those women. And went, I want to go as fast as what they do. Mm-hmm. And there was something about that, and being them, being visible, and watching them on TV. I, in particular, I remember watching, you know, Beijing, and and thinking, I just want to be like some of these women and mm-hmm. look as strong as they do. And that's guided me throughout my my whole career. Basically, is from what I watched at a very very young age and my idols. And I think that even now, I remember when I met Kelly Holmes, um, mm-hmm. when I did Commonwealth Games in 2014, being a young 16 year old, and I remember being the same moment. I remember just feeling so overwhelmed Mm. because I remember just thinking to myself, oh my word, like I have idolized you growing up and to now be as an athlete, as an international athlete in this room with you, it just blew me away. And like you talk about that experience there, when I used to run, I used to pretend that I was yeah, there. And so, yeah. There's so much power in, in having idols and, and you know, and that was back then. I mean, now the access that, you know, the, and with the visibility that now that women's sport has, it's just incredible to see, female athletes uh, from all different sports now Mm. being given the opportunity to become them role models um And it made me think of, um, I guess, a little bit of a closing tradition that we have on this podcast about thinking about role models uh, that we have, Mm. um, in particular, lifting up other women. Um, And I just wanted to know from you who your role model was or who one of your idols was growing up um, in sport, whether it's it's in cycling or another sport um, and um,
0: who that was for you. Well, growing up, it would have been Sally Gunnell and Sonia Sullivan. So I was a bit of a hurdler before I became a triple jumper. So Sally Gunnell was my absolute hero. I thought she was amazing. Sonia Sullivan, because she won in an Ireland jersey, which for me was just (laughs) mind-blowing. So my heroes were very much sporting. I'd say um, in later life you become a bit more broad. um, And I guess in terms of the woman that I really look up to, then it's people like Michelle Obama or Mary Robinson or Mary McAleese, the Irish presidents. But really, because you you said this question was coming, so I was thinking about this in the way here. And it, um, I mean, my role models are the people in my life and I'm really, really lucky like that. But I also choose friends very deliberately because I think that you become the people that you hang out with. And my friends are all fighting the same battles as me, I guess, and doing it with such grace and style and kick-ass power that every single one of my friends, I would count as being a role model, but the ultimate is my mum because she was the person who got me into sport? She is obsessed, obsessed with Gaelic football. I cannot tell you how many times she'll watch back a football match just to spot little moves that she missed in the first time. She watches all the shows that I do, all the sport that I do. And I just think she lives her life with such compassion and care. And she supports each one of us as her children. I'm one of four. And the grandchildren, and she's still, you know, by the time this podcast comes out, she'll probably have turned 70. She's turning 70 this week. Um, and she is still who helps the person who helps me most in my life. You know, she comes over to Amsterdam and looks after my kids whenever I'm over here and she helps out my husband. My mother-in-law does as well. She's absolutely an incredible woman. Um, but I would say my mom is probably my role model because she has always lived her life with such care and grace and compassion and strength and power of belief and strength of belief and she's a person who genuinely I think believes in me the most so yeah I would say it might be a bit cliched and trite but my mum would be my role model really. No I love
1: that <laughs> I think that's the perfect way to to finish on it sounds like she's an incredible woman but thank you so much Ola for yeah, taking the time and being one of our first guests on the show it's been amazing to have yeah, you, thank you so I've much. loved it it's
0: flown by I know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: thought we could have spoken
0: for hours here, Yeah. Yeah. Well, good yeah. luck with the podcast I think it's Thanks. the best idea yeah, Woman supporting you. women is the only way to live our lives and I would always say that this narrative that has been passed through generation to generation that women are their own worst enemies I would say if that's the case for you you're hanging with the wrong tribe women lift each other up they are your best support and the best Best examples that you can have of how to live your life. So um, I think it's amazing what you're doing. Well done. Preach. (laughs) Leave
2: it there. (laughs) Amazing.